Please listen carefully. This is the House of Speakeasy podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Brought to you live every month from House of Speakeasy. We are your hosts. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. In this episode of the podcast, our storytellers deal with the most fortuitous kind of failure. Failing up. With the help of writers Mitchell S. Jackson, Jana Levin and John Avlon, we honour the defeated, the ones who've been counted out and underestimated, the people who've tried and failed and tried again. Jana Levin, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Barnard College, presents our first story. Failure and redemption sometimes don't both fall within one lifetime. And consider scientific progress. Uh, over 100 years ago, Einstein presented his grandest accomplishment, the general theory of relativity, in which matter and energy curve space and time. Immediately on publication, Einstein turns his attention to what he considers the most pressing problem in all of general relativity, which is gravitational waves. The idea is that if the sun curves space and time, and those curves must follow the sun as it accelerates around, creating waves in the shape of space-time itself, gravitational waves. We can think of gravitational waves almost like sound waves, but not through air or water, or if you live in New York, you know, your plaster walls and a glass if you're an eavesdropper, um, but through space-time itself. Not that this was obvious to Einstein or anyone else working in the newly discovered relativity. In 1916, Einstein said he didn't believe gravitational waves were real. Later, a year later, he writes a paper which says that they are. In 1936, he reverses himself again, writing an elaborate publication arguing that gravitational waves cannot exist. Then between acceptance and the actual going to press, he sneaks in a different manuscript which says the opposite, that they do exist. And um, one of his colleagues says, you know, Einstein, you have to be careful. Consider your famous name. And he says something like, oh, you need not to be too careful about this. There are plenty of wrong papers in my name, too. <laughs> now, during these decades of confusion, one lone pioneer, Joe Weber, decides to leave the theorists to their debates, their faces in their books, you know, heads too close to their chalkboards. He decides to lift his head up and go outside and have a look around. If gravitational waves are real, he's going to be the first to discover them. He strikes out alone, a brazen explorer, and he comes back with tales of a remarkable few that he doesn't pretend to understand yet. In 1969, after about a decade of effort, Joe Weber announces that he has achieved the experimental feat widely believed to be impossible. He has detected evidence for gravitational waves. I mean, imagine his pride, you know, the pride to be the first, the victory of discovery. I mean, the sheer sort of pleasure of accomplishment. Practically single-handedly, he conceives of the possibility. He fills multiple notebooks, hundreds of pages deep with calculations and designs and ideas, and then he builds a real apparatus. It's a Weber bar, uh, it's called, named after him, a resonant bar, and it's supposed to ring in sympathy with a passing gravitational wave. It's an aluminum bar about two meters long and one meter thick, about 3,000 pounds, so it's not that easy to pluck. 
But if a strong gravitational wave passes at just the right frequency, it's going to ring the bar like a tuning fork, which is a wild exaggeration, but you get the idea. It rings the bar. In these pictures of Joe Weber, black and white pictures, you can see him sort of bent over the cylinder. His hair is both dark and gray, and it's brushed high and back. And he's wearing a shirt that's white and short-sleeved, and his glasses are black and square. And the contraption is pretty modest. It demands little. But the universe has rewarded him with this noisy sky. Daily, the bar is ringing in response to signals. And he doesn't presume to know what the sources are. He's agnostic about the sources. He leaves that to others. But he has discovered this new terrain for experimentalists to explore and for theorists to explain. He has literally made the experimental discovery of the century. At a typical uh, uneventful conference in general relativity, uh, Weber makes his announcement. It's, you know, they're still arguing about whether or not gravitational waves are real at this point. He makes his announcement, uh, origin of the waves unknown, maybe from the center of the galaxy. At first, there's just shock. And then there's uh, celebration. There's even applause. You know, he's heralded. He's on the cover of magazines. He becomes one of the most famous scientists in the world. And many people would kid up uh, and follow him, you know, adrenalized by the promise. The greats, Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose, Sir Martin Rees, Freeman Dyson, they all set about to try to identify what could possibly be ringing space-time so loudly, exploding stars or colliding objects. Even the incomparable Robert Oppenheimer is encouraging Weber. As fast as scientific momentum can change, it changes. Pretty soon there's Weber bars at IBM, in California, in Louisiana, in Italy, Moscow, Scotland, Germany, Japan. They're literally all over the place. NASA even puts one of his instruments on the moon. And no one, no one except Joe, hears a thing. <laughs> it is dead quiet out there. So pretty soon, all of that uh, celebration turns to acrimony. Very bitter scientific disputes break out. And, and doubt starts to really ripen to a pretty bad conclusion that Joe Weber was just wrong. He made a mistake. He had never detected a gravitational wave. So the subsequent decades offer a near total withdrawal of support, both from scientific funding agencies um, and his peers. He was almost fired from the university. But Weber never relents, even as the evidence accumulates and the community turns away. So at another relativity conference at MIT, these are getting much more lively <laughs> and exciting kudos to Joe, um, an IBM scientist, Richard Garwin, decides uh, he's going to denounce Weber publicly. He's going to take him down. He stands at the front of the hall and he tears him apart. The two almost come to blows. Weber and Garwin are standing facing each other in threatening postures in front of an audience of peaceful relativists. <laughs> and they're separated only by the upheld cane of the moderator. Right? Eventually, the two retreat, and, and Weber is, is resolute, and Garwin is utterly contemptuous. Uh, Weber said in an interview, I cannot understand the vehemence and the professional jealousy in why each man feels he needs a pound of my own flesh. Uh, Freeman Dyson, his friend and an influential, an influential scientist from Princeton, 
in an attempt to get Weber to stand down, writes him this painful letter. And I just very briefly want to read parts of that letter because it was so perfectly phrased. He writes, Dear Joe, I have been watching with fear and anguish the ruin of our hopes. Now I still consider you a great man, treated unkindly by fate. And I am anxious to save whatever can be saved. A great man is not afraid to admit publicly that he has made a mistake and has changed his mind. I know you are a man of integrity or strong enough to admit that you are wrong. If you do this, your enemies will rejoice, but your friends will rejoice even more. You will save yourself as a scientist, and you will find that those whose respect is worth having will respect you for it. Needless to say, Freeman's advice goes unheeded. Um, Weber uh, persists for three more decades doggedly, relentlessly, as though the treasure was too valuable and the defeat was too personally catastrophic. He's caught up in his determination, this unwavering purpose, but he's also caught up in an aspiration for the improbable, if not downright impossible. And he's caught up in ambition, but it's not for money or power, it's for knowledge and acclaim and respect. And he's caught up in this luckless expedition as a professor emeritus, he begins to maintain his, uh, his laboratory with his own wallet. His laboratory is like a concrete box in a Maryland wood. Reportedly, if you ask him where his funding comes from, he would show you the actual wallet. Um, <laughs> so while Joe is alone in this devolved facility, a new project starts to grow out from underneath his shadow. And while Joe is maintaining his facility DIY style, Caltech and MIT set up a base camp and begin a long and uh, expensive campaign to build a completely new kind of machine, completely new kinds of instruments uh, to detect gravitational waves, an experiment called LIGO. In these pictures of Joe in the lab, you can see fanned atop these metal cabinets journal articles that are telling of a new era in experimental physics in which Joe will have really no part. Weber sums up his uh, circumstances in a quip about his second wife, Virginia Trimble, the young astronomer, 23 years his junior. He says, when I married her, I was famous and she was not, and now our roles are reversed. In the year 2000, Joe Weber slipped on the ice in front of his laboratory. He was maintaining the facility alone and so was accustomed to manual labor at 81 that most men aren't. He parked his car at the top of the hill, figuring he'd never get it out of the snow and the ice again, and he took the rest of the uh, jaunt on foot. And uh, it was two days before he was found. Fifteen years later, after Joe's death, the competing project, LIGO, has completed its most advanced machines. Now, LIGO has had its own problems. LIGO struggled under the blot of Weber's refuted claims, and there was a lot of violent opposition from very powerful peers who thought this already failed, and it failed publicly and catastrophically. What are you people doing dredging this up again? Um, it was decades of unremitting effort, hundreds of scientists' lives, and a billion dollars invested, and still there was no guarantee LIGO would succeed. Maybe there was nothing out there to hear. On September 14th, in the middle of the night, a lot of things in the story happen in the middle of the night. It's because it's astronomy. Um, 
it's, uh, it's 2015, the centenary of Einstein's general theory. The LIGO scientists are struggling to get these advanced instruments ready for the first science run. They're behind schedule. The instruments just aren't ready. In frustration in the middle of the night, 4 a.m. and one coast, 2 a.m. on another, um, they put their instruments down and they go home. Now, mind you, these are colossal instruments. Each one spans four kilometers. And, uh, and there's two of them, one on each coast. So they both, on the two different sites, happen to drop their instruments around the same time and decide I've had enough, mercifully leaving the instrument locked in observing mode. In the span of an hour, uh, a signal sloshes over the Earth. So somewhere in the universe, two black holes collided churning up space and time as they collided and merged, forming one bigger black hole, an event more powerful than any detected since the Big Bang. And uh, there was more power in this collision than the luminosity of all the stars in the observable universe combined. But none of that energy came out as light. All of that energy came out in this purely gravitational form in gravitational waves. By the time the gravitational waves traveled through the universe to strike the Earth over a billion years later. LIGO scientists still en route home. <laughs> the machines record these Lilliputian variations in space of less than one ten thousandth the width of a proton over the four kilometer span of the instruments and only for one fifth of a second. Yeah, it's pretty good stuff. <laughs> it's pretty good. So LIGO records the first definitive sounds from space. In the discovery paper, they pay homage to the most controversial figure in their field, uh, acknowledging Joe Weber as the original pioneer. Uh, Joe didn't make the summit, but they might not have even conceived of the feat without him. In the hundred years since Einstein imagined gravitational waves, scientists strove for understanding uh, they often failed and sometimes succeeded. On this arduous ascent, Weber was lost, as were others to grievous internal battles, but uh, still the numbers on the climb grow. And no matter who falls away, someone's there to take their place and the ascent continues. It's as though the expedition is alive, you know, and it's marching towards this crash of a colossal machine and a wisp of a sound. Even now, the exploration continues. LIGO is filling out the soundtrack to accompany the silent movie of astronomical images. Uh, meanwhile, the universe expands, indifferent to our ambitions. Thank you. That's what we live for here. <laughs> Our next speaker has many things going for him. Mitchell S. Jackson blazed into the universe with his first book. His debut novel, The Residue Years, won the Ernest J. Gaines Prize for Literary Excellence. And last year, he was the 2016, or one of the 2016 Whiting Award winners. And I want to read you something that he has written about his own writing. He says, once you realize that characters have a life of their own, 
and you let them do what's right for them, then the work opens up. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mitchell S. Jackson. Picture this. It's uh, 1993, and my brother and me were both recent high school graduates and fledgling dope dealers. We get our hands on some uh, powder cocaine, but neither of us know how to cook it. So we, uh, we draft our uncle, an uncle I'll call uh, Uncle Hustle. So uh, we find Uncle Hustle at one of our uh, other uncle's house. Um, and we tell him about our plight. Like, look, Unc, this is what we have. Um, we don't know how to cook it. And Unc says that he's gonna help us out for a fee. <laughs> Uncle the hustler. Um, so Unc cooks the dough for us and uh, we watch him. And, uh, after he finishes, we package it up and then he's like, come on, y'all, let me take you across the street and show you something. So Unc takes us across the street to a, to a dope house and sits us on the porch, and then Unc gets to preaching. Unc says, say, uh, check this out, nephews. Um, the fast 10 beats the slow 20. I'm like, what? He says, yeah. He said, listen, while you waiting all day to make $20, you could have made $10 umpteen times. All right, nephew, you hear me? The fast 10 beats the slow 20 every time. So as I come to understand a fast 10, slow 20, it's get all you can, while you can, as fast as you can. Get it fast and spend it fast because the money ain't promised and neither is the next day. In fast 10, slow 20, the reward is in the result. So um, I start to learn uh, the concept but I'm gonna tell you, I was an unexceptional drug dealer. <laughs> I just, I wasn't good at it. I wasn't good at it. For one, I was, uh, I was too trusting. Like I would give a guy my dope and he would say, I'm gonna go sell it for you and then he'd run off. <laughs> and I wouldn't see him no more, you know? And then I, I fancied myself, you know, a young man of integrity, right? So I wouldn't sell people bad product, right? So. I couldn't get over like that. And then I called myself being a man of morals. So when someone robbed me, like I didn't want to kill him. <laughs> right? It's a man of morals. Luckily, I did get a little better at it. So I, I started making what I thought was respectable money for my age and ambition. Um, and the time I was 19 years old, I, uh, I grabbed my little stash and I went into the bathroom and I started counting it out. And uh, I counted out 20,000 and I said, oh man, I got some money now, like what should I do? So I, um, I got on the phone, I looked, this is phone books, we still have phone books then. This is the 90s. <laughs> I called a guy from Prudential. <laughs> I'm not lying, I, I really did. I called him up, I said, uh, hey sir, uh, excuse me sir, um, what would you tell a 19-year-old uh, a young man who had $20,000 to invest? And the guy said, well, uh, I tell that young man 
that by the time he was 35 years old, he'd be a rich man. I did not invest my money. <laughs> but I did go put a down payment on a Lexus, <laughs> bought me a Rolex, and got me some gold. <laughs> I was in college, but I was living fast 10, slow 20. Um, so uh, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit to 1997. <clears throat> I'm at home cooking up dope. I know how to cook now, thanks to my uncle and a few other tutors. <laughs> and uh, I cook up four and a half ounces and I get an extra 20 something grams. That's almost a whole ounce of dope. So um, like a responsible drug dealer would take the dope from where he was going and if he wasn't going to sell it, he would go put it somewhere where it was safe but I was not very responsible, so I went to go play basketball with my friends with the dope in my car. Uh, and then after we went to go play basketball, I should have, again, a responsible drug dealer taken the drugs to my stash spot, but I wasn't very responsible, so I went and picked up a young lady to take her out to dinner with the dope in my car. And uh, we get a few blocks from her house, and the police get behind us. I'm thinking, oh, no problem. But I forgot that I had a gun in the car <laughs> and uh, dope under my seat. And so they see the gun, and they draw down on us, they pull us out the car, you know, all the wild stuff they do, and uh, they find the dope. So I go to prison. Um, I, uh, while I'm in prison, uh, I read um, my first novel, and I decide that I'm gonna write my life story. So I get some loose leaf paper and I start scribbling. Or I do it in fiction because, you know, I'm also writing about the local kingpin and I still have to mind the hood ethics. Like I, I can't go home writing true stories about people that are selling drugs. So I, I write it as fiction and uh, I get out. I went back to school. I got my bachelor's degree, feeling really good. You know, uh, rehabilitated if I was ever habilitated. <laughs> Then I decided I'm gonna go back and get my master's degree in writing because I still really wanna publish this book, but I, I don't know anything about writing. So I, I get into a master's program. I'm from Portland, Oregon. I went to Portland State University, their master's program. Um, and while I'm there, I realize, well, you're not gonna be done when this is over. So I apply to NYU. I figure, oh, this is where the publishing industry is. And so I apply and they, miraculously, they let me in. So I moved from Portland to New York um, still with this, uh, my, my thesis or the novel to be that I came home with and uh, I go to NYU. Uh, then I get out of graduate school. I still have these pages, this manuscript. I have no novel. Um, so I'm, now I'm looking around for like writers groups and you know wondering to myself is like this really gonna happen. And um, about 2008 I take a workshop with this, uh, this old um, editor. It's a really famous guy. I'm gonna call him Captain Fiction because that's what they used to call him, I hear. Um, so I get into the workshop and uh, the way that this guy teaches the workshop is he lectures to you for six hours about sentences and about why you should be writing beautiful sentences. I mean, he never even takes a bathroom break. <laughs> Dude is like 70 years old, no bathroom break. I was sitting there like, I ain't taking no break. If you don't take no break, I ain't taking no break. <laughs> so at the end, 
of his lecture, he says, okay, I want everyone to go home. It's like 40 of us in the room. I want everyone to go home and all of you to write one sentence. And you come back and read it. If I like your first sentence, you can read two. If I like your second sentence, you can read three. But if I don't like your first sentence, you can't read it. So we all come back, everybody nervous. He goes around the room, hey, read your sentence. Uh, I, stop. That was some bullshit. Why did you read that? He points to the next person, read. They read, no. I'm like, oh shit, he about to get to me. So he gets to me and I read my first sentence. He's like, go on. I said, oh shit. I got one sentence out. I ain't been through two graduate programs. I'm happy about one sentence. <laughs> I read another sentence. He said, go on. I said, oh my God, this is crazy. Can you believe this? I read the third one. He's like, stop, Jackson. But then he said, you know what? You got an ear. And I tell you, that was like, I don't know. It was one of the most beautiful sentences that I'd ever heard in my life. So this editor, he kind of take a liking to me. And uh, so he, he stays up really late. I'm not a late person, but he stays up late. And he'll call you late at night and tell you things like, I think you can do it. <laughs> if you stick with me, you'll win. So he was leaving me these kind of messages. I was like hyped. Like, oh, he believes in me. So uh, once we start um, working on my stories, I call him one time and I say, hey, I want you to hear what I, what I wrote. And so I read him the story and he's like, ah, Jackson, it's good, but it's, it's not there. It's like midnight. So I, I'm like, okay. He says, well, look, I'm gonna be up for a little while. Uh, you know, if you feel like you get it, then you, you call me back and, and, we'll, and we'll see. So I work on it from like midnight to about three, four in the morning. I call him back, he answers. It's like, damn, this dude never sleeps. He don't sleep or piss like he's fucking, this guy's amazing. So I read him the story and he's like, that's it, Jackson, that's it. I'm like, oh my God, I dance around my apartment like, oh shit, I did it, I did it. So uh, I'm so hyped that I'm like, well, let me send him this novel. Right? And so I'm like, oh, if he loves the story, like, of course, he's gonna love the novel. Like, why wouldn't he? So I send him the novel. About a week later, I get a postcard. That's how old he is. He sent postcards. <laughs> the postcard, I can't remember all that was on the postcard, but what I do remember is that it said, uh, throw it away. I'm like, whoa, what? Throw it away? He's like, yeah, so I called him, I'm like, uh, did I misread uh, any part of your postcard? And he was like, nah, Jackson, you know, some good stuff in there, but it's really, it's, it's not a novel, and whatever's good in it is gonna be there. If you rewrite it, I'm like, rewrite it? Dog, I've been working on this over 10 years. Like, rewrite it, throw it away? Like, I can't believe it. So I hang up the phone, I sit on my couch, and I cry. And I ain't one of them old crying ass dudes. Like, I was in tears, right? Luckily, he called me back like two weeks later, he said, Jackson, look, uh, I want you to take this manuscript over to this agent's house and leave it with her doorman with a note that I said, bring it. I said, okay. So I do, and a few weeks later, that agent calls me and she says, um, you know, I think there's promise here, but uh, I think we need to work on it. I'm like, damn, I'm already 10 years deep on this thing. You wanna work on it some more? She's like, yeah, I think, you know, we put in six months, another year, like we can get it in shape. 
Okay, six months a year, so we do it. We work on it. She finally calls me a year later. She says, I think it's ready to go out. So she sends it out, rejection one. She sends it out, rejection two. She sends it out, this could be a fucking chorus. We got a lot of rejections. And uh, now I'm getting disheartened. Um, but I guess to like perk me up, she like schedules meetings with editors. Like I go in there, clearly they don't wanna buy the book, but like at least I'm doing something now that looks like I'm productive. Uh, so one meeting, I go in to meet an, an editor, and uh, I walk in, and sh she's like, oh, hi. I was like, you know, I read the book, and I really love it. She was like, it's a shame that I passed on it. I'm like, you passed on it? Like, what part of the game is coming to meet the agent that passed on your book? But then she says, you know, but I, I just can't stop thinking about it. And I was wondering, how do you think you could revise it? Now, remember, <laughs> I've been working on this book for 12 years. She talked to me about another revision. So I give her an idea. She says, oh, I think, you know, it could work. So I leave, and she's like, um, I'll get back to you. She says she's going to get back to me. I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm about to get a six-figure publishing deal. This is it right now. I'm about to get rich. I get a call. The publishing deal was for $17,500. All I could think was, did they miss a zero on this? I called my agent like, is, it, is this right? She was like, yeah, Mitch, you know, this is what the market can bear. So. Fast forward, um, what I <clears throat> thought about when I got that $17,500 book deal and remember being a 19-year-old counting up $20,000 <laughs> in my bathroom, um, I thought about my Uncle Hustle and what he would say. <laughs> I thought Uncle Hustle would call me a damn fool for spending so much time on something that paid so little, but I would tell uh, Uncle Hustle, if he would listen to me, that I have a new mantra now, and that new mantra is put in the hard work, the long hard work, and reap the rewards. I would tell him that the greatest reward is not what you get from it, but the process of making it. Thank you. You've been listening to House of Speakeasy's seriously entertaining podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. Now, back to the show. Our final speaker tonight, I'm delighted to introduce, is my good pal, former colleague, the editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast, the sanest man on TV, where you can see him on CNN Daily, John Avlon. He's written a very timely and important book called Washington's Farewell, The Founding Father's Warning to Future Generations. A warning, unfortunately, we didn't heed, but he's here to tell us about it. John Avalon, in his own words, the reality is that politics follows the lines of physics. Every action creates an equal and opposite reaction. Ladies and gentlemen, John Avalon. Thank you. Um, failing up, uh, in the surface, it's not the most inspiring topic uh, when we got assigned up. <clears throat> it kind of gives to mind, you know, I'm going to talk about the Peter Principle through history, right? How incompetent idiots somehow succeed despite their best efforts. But that would be uh, written from the news pages today. And today I want to try to <laughs> give a little bit of perspective because it's the thing we seem to have least of. Um, in fact, I think. Failing up 
is actually the story of us all. It's about learning from mistakes. It's about wisdom from experience. It's about perseverance. It's about not giving up. And ideally, the culmination of those things leads to the cultivation of character. And for those of you who haven't given up on the old idea that character is destiny, all immediate evidence to the contrary, um, I think there's a hopeful story within the idea of falling up. Because it applies to individuals, it applies to nations, it certainly applies to history. We're always surrounded by the specter of failure. Nothing is foregone. And when we look at history sometimes, what it does for us that I think is so invigorating is it gives us a sense of perspective on our own problems. It can give us a sense of courage and comfort. In part, and here's the, the cheat, is that it's comforting because we know how it turns out. It's going to be okay. But of course, the people who were living history in the present tense didn't feel that way. They didn't know that. And that itself is empowering. It's why we do ourselves a great disservice when we put historical figures, particularly the founding fathers, on a pedestal. Because we make them falsely perfect or intimidatingly distant, rather than understanding them as the flawed, often insecure, screwed up people they were inevitably were. Understanding that way makes their wisdom much more accessible. And I think that's part of our job when we talk about learning from history, when we talk about learning our history, when we talk about carrying forward a tradition. George Washington is the most intimidating figure on that front. He's the figure on Mount Rushmore. He is so self-monitoring that he does not give him much of himself. Abe Lincoln is mournful and depressive and poetic, and, and that's eminently relatable for us. But Washington is, is ubiquitous. He's on our dollar bills. His name is emblazoned on the Capitol, and so he seems this figure of inevitable stentorian success. But that is not the case. In 1740, when he was eight years old, George Washington's house burned down on Christmas Eve. Three years later, his father died. He was deprived of an education that most of the other founding fathers had. The family was at loose ends. They weren't first-tier aristocracy. And so he went to work as a surveyor in the wilds of what is now Ohio at the age of 16. You know, he decided he would try to do better by himself and became a soldier. He was ambitious. He was aggressive. He was impetuous. He bitterly resented the officers ahead of him. And in western Pennsylvania, he participated in a crucial battle that turned into the First World War, the first real First World War. He gets in a skirmish. It's a massacre. Voltaire writes about it and says, a cannon shot in America can set off a bloody war here in Europe. It's the first recognition that we're all truly interdependent, and it is a massive failure for George Washington as a soldier, certainly as a human. I mean, it sparks a bloodbath that lasts for seven years. That's failure. And he's frustrated, he's ashamed, to some he's blamed, but he soldiers on. He, before the Revolutionary War, marries well into a degree of wealth, but is st constantly struggling with debt. And it's a source of enormous frustration for him. He's a failure at different kinds of farming. And it, it really grates on him. But when the war comes, 
He's tapped to lead the army because he has relevant military experience. He seems like he knows what he's doing, but he's been a total failure as a soldier. Washington lost more battles than he won. That's a fact. There were people calling for his head. There were people saying he should be fired from the head of the army. And certainly everybody expected that this American rebellion would fail. That was the assumption. The idea that far-flung colonies could exist independently, that was considered naive in the extreme given the track record of democratic republics in history up to that point. All of them had failed. Now, some people said, you know, that can exist in a couple of Swiss cantons, but it's got to be enormously contained, and it's totally irrelevant to a country like the United States. Everyone expected we would fail. And even after we won the war, the Articles of Confederation, our first American government, were a complete failure. And all the colonial powers were sort of perched, waiting for us to fall on our face so they could recolonize the United States. The Spanish were in Florida, the French were in Louisiana, the British still had forts in the West and certainly control of Canada. They all assumed we would fail. John, uh, John Adams said that there has not yet been a democracy that didn't die by suicide. The prospect of failure was real and it haunted the founders. And when the Articles of Confederation were already showing that the country was falling apart, Washington started working with a very dour, tiny pilgrim type who was constantly sick, named James Madison. He didn't really know how to socialize with many folks. He hadn't served in the war. He was too sickly to do that. But he was brilliant. And he started a process that he and Alexander Hamilton would undertake, studying the failures of past democratic republics so we could learn from them as a nation and hopefully not repeat too many of their mistakes. He started compiling a document. He sent away to Thomas Jefferson in uh, France and said, send me books. And he sent a ton of books. And he started studying the failures of the ancient Greek city-states. He studied how they would often unite against common enemies, particularly the Persians. But while they could unite in war, in peace they fought among themselves. They forgot that what united them was greater than what divided them. The political intrigues were intense. The political factions were often bloody. They recounted an incredible, uh, I think very prescient, relevant story about how King Philip of Macedon posed as a friend and would offer foreign aid and buy off a couple of legislators in these countries and then sow dissension and create such division that the will of the countries, those little democratic republics, would be weakened and then they'd be easy to conquer. And that's one of the reasons why Washington was so obsessed with the danger of foreign powers intruding in domestic politics and subverting our sovereignty. You know, Vladimir Putin didn't learn that play by himself, folks. So they studied the failures of other democratic republics in an attempt to forestall them, an attempt to learn from them. And when the Constitutional Convention came, they actively drew upon the wisdom of those failures so that we could fail up from the failures of the democratic republics in the past. And it's fascinating because those early debates, they still echo on. There were plenty of folks even then arguing for states' rights who were fearful of growing federal power, who felt that the federal power would come in and erase their way of life. They were economically and culturally resentful of the idea of a national identity. And they tended to be rural. And there were people in the cities who wanted to focus on a strong central government and an energetic government. 
and they tended to be from the cities. Long before we had the idea of red states and blue states, these divisions persisted. The Constitution was deeply divided. It barely hit the necessary number of states for passage. So upon examination, a lot of the illusions we have about the inevitability of success fall apart. And that's important because we can learn from that. We can draw strength from that. We can draw wisdom from that. You know, when Washington was a very reluctant president. He was the only man they felt could unite the nation because more than half the members of the Constitutional Convention had served under him in war. But he was deeply insecure. He had no education like so many of the other founding fathers. He felt that he didn't have the mental acuity, the experience in laws and finance to be the first president. But he was convinced to do it anyway. The specter of failure hung over all the founding fathers. It seemed to be a foregone conclusion. The success of the United States was long odds against the failures of history. And yet, we survived. And yet, we succeeded. There were attempts to subvert our sovereignty by the French, our former allies, who lit up riots and protests and calls of treason, called for Washington's head to be cut off and that of Adams. There were deep divisions between the political parties. Former friends feuded and called for each other's heads. And Washington, at the end of his second term, sat down to write a farewell address in which he tried to delineate everything he learned from his failures and from his understandings of the failures of democratic republics in the past. As a memo to future generations, so we could be informed by those failures, so we could learn from those failures, so we could make new mistakes, not old ones. Unfortunately, our track record isn't great in that front. He warned about hyperpartisanship, excessive debt, and foreign wars. But those are the forces that are larger than us. Those are the forces of history. Now, the thing of it is that we are not inevitably destined to fall to those forces as long as we are informed by history, informed by those failures, as long as we resolve to learn from them and set up some bulwarks that can stop it. And that's really what about the cultivation of character is about. It's about trying to spread the lessons of our own experience to our friends, and if not, if not that, then at least our children and our future generations. That's an incredible part of what we hand down is learning from failures. And it's imperfectly heated. We had a civil war anyway. 600,000 Americans died. But after that war, they picked up Washington's farewell address. They, Abraham Lincoln had it read to the troops. And after the war, it was mandatory teaching in public schools to help rebind the nation, to help relearn those lessons that we had forgotten with disastrous results. But whether you look at the failures of George Washington as a man, of which there were many, especially by contemporary lenses, or whether you look at the failures of democratic republics up to the United States or the near-death experiences we've had, we carry on and we persevere because we learn, however imperfectly. And there's a quote from Thomas Jefferson that I think is extraordinary and it begins the book because it sums up so much of the struggle and against a backdrop of potential failure. Jefferson wrote about Washington, the moderation and virtue 
of a single character probably prevented this revolution from being closed, as most others have been, by a subversion of the liberty it was intended to establish. Every revolution had failed because the leader of the revolution had become drunk with power and turned into a new kind of tyrant. The relationship between anarchy and tyranny seemed very well established. It had gravitational pull of history behind it. That specter of failure could have seemed preordained. But through cultivation of his character, despite deep insecurity, Washington set a new example and was conscious of it. And through moderation and virtue, he set a new example that was able to live on and is carried on. And God knows we make mistakes and we make some new ones and we make some buttes. We fitfully form a more perfect union. And as long as we resolve to learn from mistakes, as long as we resolve to have those failures inform and strengthen and steal our character, We'll get through this, because we still stand. Thank you very much. That was John Avalon on stage for House of Speakeasies Failing Up. That's it for this episode. Thanks to all our brilliant storytellers. And thanks to you for listening. And to learn more about House of Speakeasy and what we do as a nonprofit, visit our website, houseofspeakeasy.org. And if you're in the New York area, please join us at one of our live shows at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater in Manhattan. I'm Amanda Foreman. And I'm Lucas Whitman. Thanks for listening.